If you like this podcast, you're going to really like McClanahan Academy. Head over to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll. It's free of charge. You get a free class, 10 Myths of American History. When you do enroll, I've got nearly 20 classes there available for purchase. Go to McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll today and get a real history education. The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 720. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. You can find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me that email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, free audiobook, the same title read by yours truly. Support the show by going to mclanahanacademy.com. You've already heard about it, but purchase one or 20 classes there, the on-demand classes. This is the last chance as I'm putting out this podcast, last chance to get on McClanahan Academy live for this class, Causes of the Civil War. It's really good, and you get access to me live four times over six weeks starting in early November. Uh, we take a little break for Thanksgiving, but we finish up in early December. So you know, right here at the end of the season, right here at the end of the year, um, it's a great opportunity to get some really good content live. There's going to be on-demand content too. So it's a fantastic class and you're going to want it. I know you do. So go ahead and enroll in it. Enrollment's limited. You can use the coupon code uh, CAUSES and get $200 off. Uh, but that enrollment does end October 14th. So tomorrow, tomorrow it ends. Uh, you can also support the show by clicking on the little heart button under this video if you're watching on YouTube. That's the super thanks button. Throw a few pennies my way. Or click on the support tab at brianmcclanahan.com. Same thing. Or you can click on the shop tab. Get my logo and all kinds of cool stuff. Or go to anchor.fm and become a subscriber there. All those financial ways support the show or methods support the show. But painless ways to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Let people know you like it. Give it that five-star review. Give it that text review. Comment for the algorithm on YouTube. All of that helps, and of course, share it around on social media. Let your friends know about it. Let your enemies know about it. Let people know you like this show, and we'll grow the audience. Continue to grow the audience. I do appreciate every one of you that listens to this program. All right, wrapping up the week, and uh, this is a piece in The Atlantic that a lot of people sent me, so it is a listener-generated episode. I wanted to talk about it, and there were several different people that I saw commenting on this. And it has to do with some of the things we talked about this week. Number one, language. If you look at this piece, and it's in the Atlantic, and the title is uh, The United States of Confederate America. If you look at how language is used in this piece, you understand where we're going here, right? <clears throat> Simply the title itself implies that we have the United States and then we have this evil other thing, Confederate America. And that's an evil thing. That's a bad thing. Have this Confederate America. You know why? Well, because it's racist, because it's white supremacist, and this is this kind of stuff, right? This is what they're implying by using that term that what we have north and south in America now is a whole bunch of white supremacists running around out there that uh, just want to deny minorities and anybody that's uh, that is uh, you know somehow uh, you know marginalized deny these people any access in American society. We we started this week with uh, Justice Jackson essentially doing that in the uh, oral arguments for uh, the Supreme Court on this Alabama voting rights case. We talked about it with Jeff Dice. We talked about it with uh, the military enrollment. You see, those people are bad. 
that don't want to join the military now because it's woke and you've got the military going full court press on wokeism. People are reacting to it in a, in a negative way. Uh, and then the left is going to make fun of you for it. This is what Dice was talking about. Well, if you don't like this, well, then you're the other. You're the insignificant other. You're the deplorable. You're against democracy. You're a fascist. You're a racist. Whatever term they're going to use that has been watered down so much, it has no meaning anymore. Right? I mean, it, this, this is where all this stuff comes from. So this piece was interesting. Um, and I don't want to cover it, finish it up for the week. It's by David Graham. And he says, uh, Several years ago, I was driving on a rural road when I came up behind a pickup truck with a Confederate flag sticker on the back window. <gasps> I'm surprised he didn't have a heart attack right there. He was driving on a rural road when he saw a Confederate flag on a pickup truck. Oh, my gosh. I mean, think about the horror. This person needed therapy right then, I'm sure. Um, really needed therapy. Now, some people would have. They wouldn't have had to have a safe space and a coloring book at hand and some type of thing. That I mean, that's shocking to them. They, they would have had to have had some time to process this, that this thing was on this pickup truck. Maybe he was a Howard Dean supporter, right? Because Howard Dean wanted to have that guy support him. Um, now you couldn't get away with saying that uh, on a stump speech for the Democrats. You know, I want to have the guy with the Confederate flag sticker in his pickup truck vote for me. No, no, no. That's not going to happen anymore. He says, this isn't such an unusual sight in some parts of the United States. Wink, wink, you know where? Of course, in the Deep South. In the Deep South where all the racists live and all the rednecks and all these deplorables but this instance surprised me, you see, because the truck had Pennsylvania plates and the road was Gettysburg. In Gettysburg, we're an invading force of tens of thousands of Confederates. Wait, wait, an invading force. What do you call the Union soldiers who marched into Virginia an invading force? Probably not. But here... These are an invading force, not just any invading force, by the way, an invading force formed to defend black slavery. That's a really bad invading force. Even though we know mainstream historians like James McPherson have pointed out, yeah, well, I mean, most Confederate soldiers weren't fighting to defend black slavery. That doesn't matter to the Atlantic. The Atlantic just throws this stuff around, right? Language matters. Words matter. Emotion. This is an emotional response. <gasps> We're in Gettysburg. Oh, no. This is Gettysburg where all these guys came in here to fight. And it, the tens of thousands of black slavery proponent Confederates were up here. And a pillaging expedition, because that's what they were, arrived in summer of 1863 on a pillaging expedition. They, were there to, they weren't there to do anything else. They were there to pillage. This is so ahistorical, it's not even funny. When the first paragraph gets so many things wrong. But however, it shows you the emotional immaturity of David Graham and the historical stupidity of David Graham. Regardless, the piece gets better, if it could. But though the Civil War was a battle between two regions of the country, sympathy for the Confederacy is no longer confined to states that seceded and border states. It's not confined to these border states and these states that seceded. No, no, no. 
Support for Confederate symbols and monuments now exists across the country. Like that had never happened before. Like William McKinley, as I talked about on uh, uh, earlier this week, didn't stand up and say, you know, um, we should have a Confederate monument in Arlington. McKinley is from Ohio. Oh, we, we need that. Uh, I mean, th- somehow this didn't exist anywhere outside of the South before. That there weren't Northerners that said, you know, a uh, Confederate monument's going to be fine. Or the fact that the, uh, the monument in Chicago was attended by the Grover Cleveland cabinet. Cleveland's from New York. And, by the way, his black minister to Liberia. But, I mean, you had Northerners like um, Armour right there in Chicago spending money on this thing. But no, no, no. No, no. Uh, this was just Southerners in border states who supported Confederate monuments until now. And why? Well, you might guess why. It's because support for Confederate symbols and monuments is following lines of race, religion, and education rather than geography. So what it is, it's a bunch of Christian, white, stupid people that like Confederate monuments, you see? That's all it is. Christian, white, stupid people. Those are the only people that like Confederate monuments. If you think that Confederate monuments and Confederate symbols are okay, then you're a Christian, white, stupid person. That's it. Those are the only people. You see, to the Atlantic, you're the deplorables. This is one of many ways in which the South is no longer simply a region. A certain version in which the South is, as uh, a certain version of it has become an identity is shared among white Rural conservative Americans from coast to coast. A certain version of it, right? It's no longer just a region. A certain uh, version of it is found among white, rural conservative Americans from coast to coast. That's one takeaway from a new survey about Confederate symbols from the Public Religion Research Institute, Any Pluribus Unum. Right? So a new survey says it's more about rural, conservative, and white. Quote, We've had hints of this in the ways that campaigns get run. It used to be that all politics are local, and it's seeming more like all politics are national, Robert P. Jones, the president and founder of PRRI, told me. PRRI. When you look at the predictors on Confederate monuments, they're much more about race and partisan affiliation and education levels than they are about region. So if you're stupid, you support Confederate monuments. If you're stupid, you support Confederate symbols. That's the only people. Stupid people. Look, say you do these things, say you support this stuff on social media, and the dopey leftists that are, I mean, they have like one brain cell, and it's just the latest thing, will come out and say, you're, you're stupid. You Don't you know all the PhDs agree with me? I remember years ago, I was in a, uh, a post office, and the post, the, the, uh, the worker there uh, said to me, you know... All the smart people are Democrats, and therefore I'm a Democrat because I want to be in with the smart people. And I thought to myself, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. All the smart people are Democrats? Since when? <laughs> and they try to play this game, right? Remember when Trump was was um, sworn in and inaugurated in his festival, and it had Lee Greenwood and people like that? Oh, the cultural decline in America. Look at the Obama's inauguration. They had... All these great musicians and these these celebrities, and Trump has Lee Greenwood. Right? I mean, this is this is what they try to play on you, right? They, uh, we're we're the in people. 
All the smart people agree with us. All the fashionable people. All This is what Jeff Dice was talking about with language. All these inclusive people agree with us. The only people that don't agree with us are these white, buck-teeth, stupid people. Think about that. Think about that. This is what the piece is saying. So... Uh, now, what I do find fascinating about that comment is that politics are national. This is where I've been saying for years, think locally, act locally. Return to that idea that politics are local because they are. But we see it all the time. You go out and you listen to a state a senator or a state representative. Uh, we're going to fight back the Democrats in Washington, D.C. Well, the only way you could do that is if you believe in nullification. But these people aren't proposing that. They should be. I mean, I agree with that. We need to fight against the, the uh, if you're a Republican, right? You fight against the Democrats. If you're a Democrat, you know, we're going to run against Donald Trump here in this state. We're going to go against Trump's agenda. What is that? <clears throat> what is that at the state level? So see, it's all about, they're using these national symbols at the state level. They need to get away from that. It's ridiculous. Stupid in a way. But this is where we are. So I agree with Jones in that way. But... Um, you know, this idea of race and partisan affiliation and education. It's all black. This is what the Atlantic getting to. This is what, this is what uh, David Graham is getting to here. He says, some of the survey's findings are unsurprising. Southerners are more likely to report Confederate monuments or displays of the flag in their community. Black Southerners report especially acute awareness of such monuments. White Americans are more likely than black Americans to see Confederate symbols as expressions of Southern heritage rather than racism. Yeah, I mean, so Southerners tend to uh, support, that should say support, not report. I don't know what's going on here. Likely support Confederate monuments, displays of the flag, where black Southerners uh, support especially acute awareness of such monuments. Or, uh, But he says, where things get interesting is where the survey measures support for reforms, whether Destruction of these markers or removal to a museum. Across race, party, and education levels, numbers diverge, but views about reform are nearly identical in the South and in the rest of the country. Nearly identical portions of Southerners and Americans elsewhere, 22% versus 25%, back reform. And nearly identical portions oppose it, 17% versus 20%. The remainder are split between leaning one way or the other, again closely mirrored. In other words, Non-Southerners feel the same way about Confederate monuments that Southerners do. <gasps> oh my gosh. <clears throat> this is shocking to David Graham. How can people outside of the South even fathom having a Confederate monument in the South? How, how does this happen? How do people outside the South think that these monuments were okay? I don't know. Maybe the uh, people that were actually shot at by Southerners were, who thought they were okay too might be a lesson in that. <laughs> but then he says, this would surely come as a surprise to the men who professed fidelity to state and region above national identity when they sided with the Confederacy in 1861. That would come as a surprise. I don't think it would. Because you know what these guys said? Essentially, we know there's people in the North that agree with us. They knew it. Lincoln only got, Lincoln, think about this. In 1864, when Lincoln was reelected, he only received 55% of the popular vote. 55%. 40, and, and there's fraud in that too, by the way. 
Uh, there's a there's a book by uh, a guy named White, and he talks about this. Now, he, I mean, he is not a pro-Southerner at all, uh, Jonathan White. Uh, but it's uh, I can't remember the title of the book, but it it gets into uh, voting how the military is used as a political weapon by the Lincoln administration in 1864, and there was certainly fraud. You ship the army around, get them to vote in places where the the election might be in doubt. Of course, you use other tactics like troops at the polls, stuffing ballot boxes, uh, uh, oaths, uh, loyalty oaths, test oaths, all kinds of stuff to ensure that you're going to win the election. We know in some cases, you know, Democrats didn't even show up. So that 55 to 45 is skewed even. I think it was probably closer to 50-50. And Lincoln... Um, in my opinion, probably either was much closer to being defeated or maybe was defeated, but it doesn't matter um, because, I mean, we know and yeah, we can't go back now. But the fact is there are a lot of Northerners, even very important Northerners like Franklin Pierce, who I talk about in my Copperheads class at McClanahan Academy, uh, or others, I mean, uh, Millard Fillmore and uh, James Buchanan, and I mean, these are just some pretty prominent people that were not necessarily in line with the northern prosecution of the war. There were lots of them. Uh, you know, Herman Melville, the very famous poet, wrote a number of poems about the war, and they were actually against the Lincoln administration. His whole family were Democrats. The Melvilles in New York, they didn't support the war. Nathaniel Hawthorne didn't support the war. It's amazing they came through their reputations unscathed, but certainly there was a large number of Northerners who didn't support the war because they saw it as it was, an invasion and occupation and a subjugation. So this guy sees the problem as, and he says it in the next line, but it's the product of a dynamic in which white rural Americans around the country have adopted the culture of white rural Southerners. <clears throat> so it's almost, he's saying the South has become, as he says, the United States of Confederate America. The South, Southern culture, has become dominant. That This wasn't already there. Now, let me, let me give uh, Mr. Graham a history lesson here. I don't think it has anything to do with that. I think that people in rural areas have come to see Confederate symbols as a form of defiance. Kind of a, a big you know, middle finger to the centralized state. And in the years after the war was over, <clears throat> yes, you had a large number of, con- of our Union veterans who were still <clears throat> making the claim that Southerners were traitors and that we shouldn't, <clears throat> excuse me, shouldn't honor these people. But when you get to the populist movement, this becomes a really interesting part of this. Rural Americans in the North, in the Midwest, in the South, in the West, decided that they didn't really like this new financial monstrosity that was forced on them by the war, and they started aligning themselves together again. When you have, you know, fighting Bob LaFollette, who, I mean, talked in a way, I mean, a lot of what he said was very leftist. I mean, C.A. Lindbergh, you know, he's a red Republican, kind of a, a socialist, but he was certainly against these financial elites. Minnesota, was just like Alabama in the way that they liked, they, they were rural, right? And C.A. Lindbergh and Charles Lindbergh's son, of course, the famous aviator, um, they came out of a very rural part of the state. This was, I mean, you had to 
he had to work to get to some of these rural areas. There's a lot in common there, in uh, in say Minnesota with uh, with uh, you know Georgia, uh, south southwest Georgia or something like that, or even you know North Georgia in the mountains there, or North Alabama. There's a lot in common with these people, and you and you have um, you know when Hank Williams. Um, talks about in Country Boy Can't Survive, you know, we're from North California and South Alabama and little towns all around this land, right? It's Country Boy. It wasn't just the symbol. It wasn't just the South. They've adopted the South. They've adopted the symbol because it's a big symbol of defiance, and it's why they don't like it. You see, it's about power and language. So then Graham says, this is only one piece of the region's heritage. He's talking about the South here. A rich cosmopolitan and multiracial mix that has shaped the entire country's music, food, and culture. Though it is also the one that has become the go-to stereotype of the region's identity. So, you know, all that stuff, the country music, the food, and the culture, that's something, that's not even, that's not part of the South. That's not part of this Confederate flag stuff. Though you could argue that all of these, you want to talk about the music, the foundations of that music? All these people, all these people were pro-confederate. Look, there was a time in the south when you had when you started a political speech, you had to t- you had to give your SCV bona fides, right? I'm a son of this confederate soldier and this confederate soldier and this confederate soldier. You had to give that stuff. And uh you know, you look at all these uh, very famous country music singers and um I mean, the bona fides were there. Uh now the uh of course um uh, music is something entirely different. And if you go to Abbeville Institute, where if you want to get me five times a week, get on that podcast too, the Abbeville Institute podcast. The Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute, you can look for it on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It's out there too. Uh, but in that case, right, uh, you did have uh, multiracial influence. But as a friend of mine points out, these people didn't care. But music is the universal thing, right? You had Ray Charles wanting to do country music. Uh, Lead Belly, same thing. I mean... Uh, you had you had crossover all the time. Hank Williams loved blues music and jazz music is uh, a, a fusion in some ways of you know uh, white influence in New Orleans along with black influence. There's a lot going on there, and food you know same thing. But it was just Southern food, right? It wasn't about multiracial. It's just Southern, and the flag is not separate from that. The flag, in fact, is a interesting multicultural symbol. It's a, it's the cross of St. Andrews, right? There's a religious element to it. So then he says, the journalist Will Wilkinson, who is from Iowa, wrote about this in his Substack newsletter last summer. Well, I mean, if it's in Substack, then it's pretty important. Recalling how during his childhood, driving from Minnesota to Missouri would produce a spectrum of cultural signifiers and regional draws. No more. Everywhere it's the same Cloying pop country, the same aggressively oversized Ford F-150s, the same tumble-down Walmarts and Dollar Generals, the same eagle-heavy fashion, the same confused, aggrieved air of relentlessness, uh, relentless, I'm sorry, material decline. Even the accents are more and more the same, trending toward a generalized Larry the Cable Guy twang. Yeah, so Will Wilkinson's a cultural bigot, right? That there is, uh, you know, from Minnesota to Missouri. It's, it's all just country boy stuff now. I would agree with him that uh, the regional languages are disappearing and regionalism is disappearing because of television and other things. I do think that's the case. 
you're not going to have you know Phil Hart in the uh, you're not going to have uh, you know uh, I'm sorry uh, you're not going to have people in the Senate when when uh, John Stennis of Mississippi says is uh, feel hot in here and they don't they think he's saying feel feel hot instead of Phil Hart right you're not going to have that or Sam Irvin whose uh, you know accent was beautiful uh, you're not going to have that anymore uh, but um, to say you know this is this is not just Southern, this is kind of a country chic, right? You know, you're going to have your pickup truck because you, I mean, you drive your truck to on your dirt road with your honey in the side seat, with your beer in the back, going fishing. Uh, you know, this is, this is kind of what country music does. It creates this environment and it's really made for Midwesterns in a lot of way. You know, Southerners listen to it too, but um, that's where we're going with that. You don't have to agree with Wilkinson's verdict on contemporary Nashville music to accept the overall picture he paints. He pins the blame for this on cable, but the culprit isn't just news channels, but also sports. There's a reason that the SEC football guru Paul Feinbaum is now a national television personality in ESPN. Oh my gosh. So, yeah, I mean, look, sports do, do matter. Pop music matters, and country music is pop music now. All that matters. It does create a, a kind of a oneness in this cultural uh, a landscape, you know, kind of you know, with rural landscape, it does create that. But I can guarantee you that um, the reason, not this, it's leading to this use of the flag outside of the South. People like it because they think it's defiance. It's not southernification; it's just ruralification. I mean. That's all. Uh, a friend of mine told me that uh, when he went to a Cinderella concert back in the 80s, uh, Cinderella, the, the glam metal band from, uh, from New Jersey, I think is where Cinderella's from. But anyways, uh, they had a big Confederate flag. Cinderella loves the South. It was seen, you know, it was okay. Uh, Zach Wilde, the uh, Ozzy Osbourne guitarist, now his own band, the Black Label, or Black Label Society, but he has a Confederate flag guitar that he often plays. And Things like that. I mean, he's from New Jersey, right? So um, it's seen as a symbol of defiance more than anything else. So Graham says, One product of this southernification is that you can now find rebel flags hanging in states like Michigan, which lost 13,000 sons in service of the Union cause, Ohio, 31,000, Wisconsin, 11,000, and Pennsylvania, 27,000. Well, on the flip side, you can find U.S. flags in the South where uh, nearly 250,000 of its sons fought and died fighting that flag. So what's the difference? You see, they're against reconciliation of recognizing that, hey, these Southerners are okay. We're going to have this flag. This is cool, right? This is, this is you know, back in the 70s, I mean, Skinner goes out to Oakland, California with a huge Confederate flag, and everybody's, the 70s, the Confederate flag was cool, right? The eight, early 80s, Dukes of Hazard. this was cool. But now, no, no, that's a bad thing, right? I would say it's probably... Uh, Maybe even less prominent now than it was just 20 years ago. Other less malign signs of the same sort of culture, culture uh, homogeneity include the ease of finding a country music station on the FM dial pretty much anywhere in America, or the popularity of NASCAR around the country. The Racing League claims that its fans are roughly proportional to the population of the U.S. by region, and four of its top ten markets are in the upper Midwest. In 2020, NASCAR banned the Confederate flag. But, of course, NASCAR was born in the South, right? But he's saying this is, 
this is the South controlling America. I mean, maybe it is, right? Maybe, maybe the South is, is controlling America. What I find interesting in this piece, they have a link in it to the myth of the kindly General Lee. Now, if you're getting this also on October 13th when it's airing, October 14th, we have a webinar on Robert E. Lee at the Abbeville Institute. You can go to the Abbeville Institute page on their events page, and you can sign up for that. We're going to have great speakers. I'll be speaking at that on Lee, and I'll be actually going over this piece, the myth of the kindly General Lee is what I'm going to do in my talk for about 30 minutes. Um, so if you want that, you're going to, it, you'd have to buy a ticket for it. But um, it is a great event, and uh, you can get introduced to the Institute and what we do there. Um, some great speakers, Kent Masterson-Brown, who's a fantastic Civil War historian, uh, Sam Mitchum, Samuel, uh, Sandy Mitchum, who is a great military historian. So it's going to be good. Uh, we're going to really have a nice discussion about Lee and um, uh, who he was. And in fact, uh, Graham brings him up. He says, Affinity for the Confederate inside, Confederacy inside northern states isn't an entirely new phenomenon. The post-Civil War lost cause ideology, along with things like uh, misbegotten peons to the nobility of Robert E. Lee, took root far outside the South. A testament to the power of intellectual ideas to succeed where muskets and rifles could not. Misbegotten peon, peons to uh, the ability of rob. So this is all misbegotten. It's all, Robert E. Lee was not noble. So that's the myth of the Kanye General Lee. This is the Atlantic promoting nonsense. The Southern Poverty Law Centers, well, it just discounts it already. Inventory of Confederate memorials and monuments includes a surprising number outside the South. A plaque celebrating Lee in Brooklyn. Yes, the one uh, that one with the Dodgers and the tree growing and the hipsters was removed only in 2017. In August, a Pentagon commission reported on KKK imagery at West Point, the military academy. Southernization co coincides with the geographic sorting in the United States. Not long ago, there were Democrats in both rural and urban areas and in every region of the country. This is why you had these ideas spread out, right? Because Democrats at one time, were the real party of the people. <laughs> the real party of average Americans, including Southerners. The same, were true, the same was true of Republicans. But now Democrats are largely extinct as a political force in rural areas throughout the country and few and far between in statewide offices across the South. Republicans, meanwhile, are wholly marginalized in almost every large city and have vanished from the Northeast. The GOP is a mostly white party. Overwhelming portions of black voters cast ballots for Democrats. The result is that the backbone of the Republican Party is a group of Americans who are white, rural, and conservative. Many have lower educational attainment than Democrats. They're not necessarily lower income, and they typically identify as evangelical Christian. You see, this is the guns and Bibles, right? I mean, this is God and guns. Skinnerd, the song Gods and Guns, but it's, it's because they're stupid, gun-toting, Bible-thumping morons. And then, of course, it gets into some really stupid stuff, like the heyday for erecting Confederate monuments came at times of white backlash to black demands for rights. Well, I, I guess it has nothing to do with the 50th anniversary of the war <laughs> or the 25th anniversary of the war. No, it's just about uh, white backlash. Of course, there's not one scrap of evidence to support that, but they just keep saying it. This is where language matters. They just keep saying it over and over again because they think some dopes that read The Atlantic will agree with it, and they're right. And you'll have some stupid historian come out and say the same thing without any evidence. I've already talked about on this podcast several times. 
He says the current support for Confederate monuments is another instance of white backlash of societal change or social change. As the political scientist Ashley Jardina has noted, the election of Barack Obama, the first black president, helped birth a wave of what she calls white identity politics. Trump, in turn, harnessed that wave to sweep himself into office. See, it's all about white identity. This is what it is. It's about being identifying as white people. It's driving people to support the Confederate flag. I don't think so. It's not about that at all. It's about defiance. People don't like cancel culture. They don't like the centralized power. They don't like being told what they can and can't like and what they can and can't say. And that flag represents that spirit of defiance. And I point back to an article Time Magazine ran on uh, the Maryland State song. And, and it was simply that. The song is a symbol of dissidence. They don't like that. They don't like you thumbing your nose at them, the elites, the educated, the smart, the cultured. Jardina finds that white identity politics doesn't necessarily require racial animus, but it's also clear that Trump and many of his followers do harbor racial animus. The PRRI-EPU study finds that, at the very least, people who do not believe that structural racism exists are much more likely to support Confederate monuments. So these are the smart people, right? <laughs> because it's true. That helps explain how the U.S. ended up with a Queens-reared, longtime Manhattan-dwelling president wrapping himself metaphorically in the Confederate flag and praising Lee. That, what? It doesn't even make any sense. If we look back at the, to the primaries of 2016 presidential election, Trump won both Mississippi and Michigan. And with this mantra of make America great again, Jones said, I continue to think the most powerful word in that mantra is the last one because it harkens back to the nostalgia for a white Christian America that has Confederate overtones. These people are just lunatics. They really are. Um, but it, they do see boogeyman everywhere. And the greatest boogeyman, of course, is the South. This nationalization doesn't apply just to rural Americans. Urban Americans are also more similar in their urban peers halfway across the country than those who live only a few miles out of town. I've written before on the tensions between conservative state governments and progressive local populations in cities across the South. Where regional gradations once existed within the parties, white voters in southern urban centers are more likely to hold political views that parallel those of white urban voters elsewhere in the country. In a state like North Carolina, where roughly half of adults were born out, out of state, White urbanites aren't just more like their northern counterparts. There's a good chance they move from there. Well, this, I mean, what a what a ringing endorsement of keeping Yankees out of the South, right? I mean, this is this is a an issue, and I do think in the future we are seeing this kind of thing developing more and more. It's rural urban split, but it doesn't mean that rural Southerners are moving to Michigan. It just means that those issues, those symbols of defiance. Uh, the Chinese uh, businessmen who went to Texas who wanted to see the Confederate Robert E. Lee monument because they looked at that as a symbol of defiance to the Yankee Empire, right? This is what's happening. We talked about it with, with uh, getting rural people to sign up for the army. They don't want to do it anymore. They don't want to support this, this uh, nonsensical, woke, imperial empire. They don't want to do it. So they're not going to sign up for it anymore. And you know what's going to happen? You're not going to have a military, really. And yes, the people that are talk, calling to take down Confederate monuments in the South typically aren't from the South. They're from outside the South. 
Despite this homogenization across rural and urban areas, stark differences in politics and quality of life manifest across blue and red states depending on which population dominates, dominates as my colleague Ronald Brownstein wrote this summer. One product of the divide among white voters is a big split about views of the Confederacy between the parties. Only 1% of white Republicans want Confederate monuments removed, but 16% of white Democrats do, nearly identical to the 17% of Democrats overall support removal, though still less than the 28% of black Democrats who do. In North Carolina, where many urban centers have seen Confederate monuments torn down, demands for change have been powered in part by a coalition of black from here's and white come here's, right? So again, outside influences taking down things because they don't like them because they move there. Well, I think maybe Southerners should move to uh, you know, the North and just start taking down Union monuments because they don't like them. They should do that. <laughs> I mean, and see what happens. We know in New Hampshire, for example, where a lot of people have moved because of the Free State Project, the, the locals are ticked. They don't like these come here's. These are invaders. You see, at the beginning of the piece, Southerners were in the invaders. But these people aren't invaders. They're good people. They're the noble people. They're the right minded people. They're the intelligent, educated people that come in and change things. Where fights over monuments have broken out, their defenders have often fallen back on the old argument that the statues and plaques and flags are symbols not of a racist hate, but of a heritage and regional pride. This argument has always had its flaws. The heritage is not that of black Southerners, and you seldom hear them defending the Confederate flag. Per the PRI, per the survey that he cites, just 16% of black Americans see the flag as a sign of pride, not racism, versus half of Americans overall. Well, that 16% is important. I mean, does that not say something? Are those people not count? But the heritage argument is even harder to credit when supporters of Confe- for Confederate symbols is as strong in states that fought to preserve the Union. The South is everywhere now and so are its worst political pathologies. The worst. The South is everywhere. It's the worst. You see. So, this piece was hilarious to me. Because it's all the hysteria that goes into the left and what they write about. But they don't like the fact that Americans are thumbing their noses at them. And the flag and Confederate monuments and symbols are the best expression of that. That's all it is. I would say that these people aren't... uh, I'm sure there's racists among them. uh, But I would say that most of them aren't any more racist than anybody else. They just don't like somebody telling them what to do. And that flag becomes that. Because... The U.S. flag is now seen as the flag of empire, of the regime, of the establishment. And they, they fly them both. I mean, I, I won't say that these people, they love the U.S. flag too. They love it. But they see that Confederate flag as something that's worthy of preservation and nobility. It's kind of like the green flag of Ireland. It's something, it's, it's, uh, it's edgy. It represents an America that was willing to be defiant against the centralized power, against control. That's why they like it. I think more than anything else, it's why they like it. And they see Southerners like Lee and Jackson and Davis and these people as expression, examples, you know, fullest expression of that. They exemplify these things. But of course, people like Graham can't get that because it's just the the stupid white Christians that believe in this stuff. And they're just duped. They've been duped by the South. So I thought this piece was hilarious. And again, it was sent to me several times over. So it was a listener-generated episode. Um, But 
there's so much garbage in it that uh, it's just it's an embarrassment to journalism. This is what the Atlantic typically does. And uh, a colleague said he didn't he didn't know if they were making fun of the South or the North more. Um, they're always making fun of the South. Uh, what they're doing though, of course, is trying to say the North has been duped by the South and the South really controls America. I, I don't see it. But there are a lot of people in the North that support. Um, this idea of decentralization of you know rural agrarian America of that real part of Southern culture and tradition that matters. This is what the the uh, the Abbeville Institute is all about. What's true and valuable in the Southern tradition? Well, all of this stuff that David Graham is against. So check out the Abbeville Institute too. Again, I podcast there one time a week. Um, it's a it's a nonprofit organization. If you're interested in the Southern tradition, you can get behind. Because it does talk about what's true and valuable in it, and that would be this idea of uh, regional identity, and of course, you know, resistance to uh, to this top-down centralized monstrosity that's in Washington D.C. All right, I'll see you next week on the Brian McClanahan Show. See you then.